Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Krista Tippett, author of Speaking of Faith and creator and host of Public Radio's Speaking of Faith program. Krista Tippett, welcome to the New School. Delighted to be here. Krista, you have an extraordinary radio program called Speaking of Faith, uh, which is uh, described on your website as public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. And each week you uh, do interviews with people covering just an extraordinary range of experiences that people have using a, a first-person approach, uh, asking uh, people from... Uh, many, many different backgrounds, what their experiences of, of uh, faith, spirit, religion, and meaning, and other questions are. I'd like to start just by asking you how you came to create Speaking of Faith. What was the journey that got you there? Okay, well, first of all, I want to say you gave such a nice uh, summary of what the show is. That's, it's always been tricky from the beginning to to talk about it because part of the reason I wanted to create it was um, because there was nothing like this. Um, we, we haven't had many models in our public life in general for intelligent conversation about religion and spirituality and, um, and how, in fact, um, in our time, there's so much more dialogue um, and kind of reaching for these for the questions and perspectives that religion and spirituality can bring to all the, everything before us, including questions in science and medicine and law and education. So, you know, the way I, I started it, because I had been a journalist, I had been a thoroughly political person, and I had begun to ask questions of meaning. I had begun to ask spiritual questions, religious questions. But when I first started being confused, I, I was, you know, very secular and didn't even think that to define my confusion that way would be intellectually <laughs> legitimate and um but i i I, can't, I then went to divinity school i got a theological education and i came out of that feeling that there was this black hole where um where the conversation that was happening happening inside many of us and in the disciplines we work in could be represented and where the you know the variety of this part of life um, and the real interest of this part of life could be represented in media. So, you know, that was the longing and the urge. And that was kind of a long road, actually, creating something new. But you came originally from Oklahoma, and mm -hmm. your, your maternal grandfather was, in fact, a minister. Right. He was a Southern Baptist evangelist. And in your book, Speaking of Faith... Um, you talk about what it was like growing up with him. What, what was it like? Um, well, it was different for me growing up with him than it was for my mother growing up with him. When she, being his daughter, um, her life was defined by things she couldn't do. She couldn't go to movies, play cards, go swimming, wear pants, go to dances. <clears throat> you know, we won't even talk about smoking and drinking and sex. Um, right. So, so she, her life with him was was all about the restrictions and you know there was a there was a sense in which religion for him faith was was about um, was a list of of don'ts um, 
I, being raised by her because she didn't impose those rules on me, um, I think was able to, I saw him as a man of contradiction because I did see him with this strictness that really didn't fit the modern world. And I, you know, the the danger that he saw in wearing pants or going to movie or playing playing with cards just didn't translate for me. And at the same time, there was a real integrity and passion in his faith that was exciting. And even though the heaven that he described in his kind of hellfire and brimstone sermons was really quite narrow. I mean, there weren't very many people who were going to get into it. It was, it was not just, uh, it, it was not only, I mean, Christians, a lot of Christians weren't going to get into it. It was basically there just for Southern Baptists. But at the same time, he was a man with a really interesting mind and a kind of a generous intellect that had never been trained. He had a second-grade education. He was a person with a great big sense of humor. And so, um, you know, he not only formed me by giving me some real religious fundamentals that I realized stuck with me, even in many years in which I was not a religious person, a sense that, that, that I was beloved, you know, that there was a sense to all of this. I mean, mm-hmm. that stuck with me. Um, but I also think when I later came back to religion, you know, I, I think that my, even though he, he, he imparted a kind of narrow, rule-bound vision of God and religion that I turned away from, um, I also took in the contradictions in him. And when I came back to religion, you know, intellect, uh, you know, generous intelligence and sense of humor (laughs) were really important qualities that I not only wanted to incorporate into my own life of faith, but found in admirable people who were very serious about religion and about their spiritual lives. Now, you were born the night John F. Kennedy was elected Mm -hmm. president, and born into a a period you write and in your talks you talk about uh, when Western intellectuals had decided that Religion was ending as a public force. Right. Harvey Cox uh, had written The Secular City in 1965. Uh, as you write, Time magazine uh, had a cover piece in 66, Is God Dead? And then uh, in later years, uh, uh, again, as you write, Harvey Cox recanted this, and the great sociologist Peter Berger said he regarded uh, this assumption that, that God was going to leave the public scene as the greatest uh, miscalculation of his career. So it really is an extraordinary fact, isn't it? Um, uh, both of us sort of trained in one way or another in, in journalism and in politics, and both of us having witnessed this uh, sort of uh, collective assumption in the uh, Western intelligentsia that God was dead, uh, and, and they turned out to be completely wrong. And, and it's not <clears throat> it's not just that we were even if, if if people of our generation believed in God, we were still taught to bracket out uh, the kind of irrationality of that uh, out of the really the, the out of real life, you know, the work we did, the thoughts in our head um, that we we all gave into a kind of compartmentalization. Um, and you know, Peter Berger and Harvey Cox were saying, they weren't necessarily saying that religion should go away, but they were saying that it was going to retreat to the private sphere so much that it just it wouldn't matter as a public force. And I have to tell you, I have just recently interviewed Harvey Cox for my show uh-huh. and uh, and had this conversation with him. 
And, uh, you know, where he is now, 40 years after that, is, is, is where I am, too. Which You know what, a, a line from our conversation that's really been just going around and around in my head is, he said, you know, the line between belief and unbelief runs through each of us. Yes. And we are right now at a point in our culture where we have this new generation of new atheists. We have Richard Dawkins right. saying the, talking about the God delusion, and we have Christopher Hitchens saying that religion poisons everything. Well, of course, you know those ideas have been out there. Um, they come back again and again cyclically. But I think that the really exciting thing about the time we live in, and, and Harvey Cox sees this too, is we don't have to make an either-or choice anymore. And what I see in journalism and education and in people I talk with in medicine, and I know you are experiencing this in your work and even in science, um, is that there is now such an important conversation taking place where, let's say, scientists are realizing that the questions, the ethical dilemmas and questions that are raised by what we can now do with technology and with our discoveries, you know, that we need other resources for ethical and moral thinking about how we apply that and what that means and what it says about what it means to be human and how it can be used with humanity. And I also think that 21st century religious people, most of us, um, have a large enough imagination about God and about faith uh, to be fascinated by the uh, insights of modern science and to see that, you know, we have a permission that my grandfather didn't have to read sacred text um, in a more complicated way, to see the contradictions and to see that the contradictions themselves create spaces for us to incorporate new learning and new knowledge from our era. And so there's really an exciting conversation and interplay now um, and I'm just, you know, really excited to be able to be part of that in some small way by having these conversations on the radio. As I've looked at your book, looked at your website, uh, uh, read as deeply as I can in your work, it seems to me there are a number of, of key themes. Uh, one is this theme that you just mentioned of, of the intersection of science and religion. Yeah. Another is the intersection of uh, religion and politics. Mm-hmm. A third is the intersection of religion and secular discourse. Right. Um, and uh, a fourth is the intersection um, in your conversations with my colleague Rachel Naomi Remen and, and many others, is the intersection... Um, where religion and spirituality somehow encounter healing and our inner lives beyond all uh, differentiation between spirituality and healing or spirituality yeah. and meaning. So it, it feels like a period of time, and sometimes I think this is very much the way it may have felt uh, uh, in the early centuries of uh, pre- and post uh, 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 the beginning of the common era, of the Christian era, it feels like a time when there are tremendous synergistic forces uh, at work bringing us into dialogues in which language almost fails us. Yes. Language fails us. Language is always going to fail us with this part of life. We're always reaching for words to describe something that will transcend words and escape them. But, but I think what's exciting now, too, is that, um, 
and a, you know, a phrase that we use a lot, like celebrating diversity, doesn't even begin to capture it. We realize that we live in a world of difference, of plurality, a global world. Um, and what I'm interested in doing and what I, what I think is exciting, you know, there was a period a few decades ago where, let's say, Joseph Campbell helped make people aware of um, how there are the same underlying themes running through many of our traditions. And that, that's an important insight. But, but what I think is so interesting is to draw out all the different kinds of language and the rich and varied vocabularies with which we grasp at those truths. And, you know, I kind of feel like if we have a chance at seeing that whole picture, it is with all of our words and all of our language and all of our ideas. Mm. So I go around picking up (laughs) this vocabulary and that vocabulary and this vision and that idea, and it's a tapestry. Do you have a copy of your book near at hand? Um... I'm sure I do. I'm sitting in my office. Uh, yes, I do. Good. I wanted to ask you, perhaps you know it by heart, but you start the book with a very beautiful poem from uh, Rainier Maria yes. Wilkie. Could you read that poem to us? Sure. I love that poem. Um, it's, it's from a book. It's from a translation of Rilke's Book of Hours, which the translators called Love Poems to God. And it goes like this. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing, embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. It's such a beautiful poem. I love that. Uh, many of us know uh, the, uh, the passage in Letters to a Young Poet that you also uh, describe later in your book, where Wilkie encourages us uh, not to seek the answers, but uh, to embrace the questions in life in a, in a very beautiful way. Has Rilke been a, a, a central source for you as you have explored this uh, inner world? Rilke is an interesting figure for me because I spent a number of years in Germany. I This is kind of improbable coming from where I did in Oklahoma, but I kind of felt like once I'd made the leap from rural Oklahoma to uh, a college in Providence, Rhode Island, I felt like I could go anywhere after that. And I ended up kind of by chance in an exchange program in East Germany behind the Iron Curtain in 1982. And um, I ended up speaking German and then spending several years of my life in Germany after that. And, uh, and that language kind of made its way under my skin the thing about Rilke, I don't know if this is connected to what you and I were just talking about a minute ago or not, but I am very serious about words and language in general. And Rilke writes in German, but it's really his own German. It's like no one else's language. It's lush. It's poetic. All the associations people might have with German from watching newsreels of Adolf Hitler, 
Yeah, I mean, German can sound like that, but Rilke's, Rilke's German gives the whole language a different feeling. And so I fell in love with, with that. And then I did find, I, said, I think Rilke was important to me, even in those years when I was in Berlin, which is a very secular place. Um, I was not a religious person at all. I was working in politics. I didn't know anybody who was religious either, frankly. Or maybe they were, but we didn't talk about it. And yet Rilke, I think, was someone I read who really nurtured that spiritual part of me, even when I wasn't even consciously willing to admit that it was there or that it needed nurturing. So, yeah, Rilke has stayed with me. And that poem is a poem I read... I think I discovered this translation of it on my 40th birthday, mm. and I was in the middle of trying to create this program, and I didn't think I was going to be able to pull it off. There was so much resistance, and there were things going wrong, and it, it just felt too improbable and too big, and that is a poem that that was really there for me and has stayed there for me, and I, I hadn't actually remembered that for a long time. That's wonderful. Uh, speaking of, of Germany, Germany, your time as a, as a student there and then your time as a, a journalist and uh, a diplomat with the U.S. Embassy in Berlin was clearly a formative period of time for you. And in your book, uh, you, you come back to uh, a number of people whose lives were uh, deeply shaped uh, by that experience. Uh, Elie Wiesel, the, the great uh, Jewish uh, philosopher, and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the Protestant theologian who died in the Nazi concentration camp. And I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about those two people, uh, Wiesel and Bonhoeffer, and what they mean to you in your inner life today. Um. I'll, I'll talk about Bonhoeffer first because I discovered Bonhoeffer. I'd say, although Bonhoeffer is a very religious figure, um, I would say that he served a similar role for me that Rilke played uh, because because even though he was a theologian, he was also this political figure. He was a figure of resistance and a, a German figure of resistance to Nazism, and that was important um, to know that as I was immersed in that place. And... It's interesting, Bonhoeffer came up in my conversation with Harvey Cox because um, Harvey Cox told me that he wrote The Secular City in the mid-1960s after spending a couple of years in divided Berlin. And he, in the early 60s, was very taken by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's thought. And, and he was taken by something that also grabbed me then, uh, 30 years later, um, you know, some of the notions that Bonhoeffer began to develop in a Nazi prison, he never lived to to really pursue these, but, you know, very intriguing ideas like religionless Christianity. He saw in Nazi Germany that the church had been thoroughly co-opted by uh, uh, a horrific government and by an ideology that was... Um, counter to everything that the church was supposed to mean in his mind. And, um, and yet, he said, he, saw, he thought that even as the church, or, and I think that he would have probably said this generally about religious institutions, you know, even as they lose their relevance or go astray, 
that you know he wasn't willing to give up on some of the on the virtues, the, the core virtues of Christianity. And you know maybe this gets at a little bit your idea of the theme that runs through my work of the religion and spirituality and how are they connected and how are they different and. Uh, and so religionless Christianity was also maybe an idea that kept me sort of nominally associated and understanding that perhaps the problems that I had with the church of my childhood, with theology, even with um, the way I saw religious institutions in society, you know, maybe that wasn't the whole point. And, oh, I don't know, Bonhoeffer is just, Bonhoeffer touches so many people amazing. He, he comes does. up a lot in my conversations, not just Christians. Mm. He, he's, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the Zen Buddhist monk, told me that he, um, or I don't think he told, he re- I read this, that he was reading Bonhoeffer and found sustenance in Bonhoeffer's example when he was going through war in his country and trying to figure out how to persevere. Uh, I didn't person. know that. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, it comes up in places you don't expect. So Bonhoeffer is just one of these figures who took religious, who took the core of what it meant of Christianity, in his case, of sacred text and tradition, so seriously, you know, with his mind as well as with his heart. Um, and I think because he took it so seriously, he... He, he was able to see beyond how it becomes diminished and distorted, uh, you know, partly by what happens in our society and partly just because of the fact that we are human beings and we are flawed. <laughs> and whenever, you know, these ideas get taken up by human beings, and that's all of us, they, they just, we get off track. Um, Nazi Germany got very tragically off track, you know, but it happens in smaller ways all the time. So that's Bonhoeffer, like, wrestling with be, being able to, to take the core extremely seriously and then, and then see the difference between what that is and what's done with it. And I think Elie Wiesel, you know, for me, I, I, I did actually meet Elie Wiesel back in that divided Germany when he came to Berlin for the first time since, since the Holocaust. And it was a hugely emotional experience for him. It was, it was hard for him just to come there. And um, I sat with him. I was there as a journalist. I wasn't a religious person. He had asked the German government if he could meet with some young Germans. He wanted to meet the new generation. And he walked out of that meeting just kind of ashen. He sat down and he said it had never before occurred to him that it could be as painful to be a child who ran the concentration camp as it was to be a child of those who died in it. Yes, um, I, I think you allied, that was a slight elision there, a child of, of those who ran the concentration camps, is what, what you intended there. Right, right. of yeah. those who, yes, a child of those who, you know, in fact, right. these were grandchildren of people who ran right. the camps, that, that they were as, as, as oppressed and damaged, right. that they struggled as much with that legacy as he struggled with the fact that his parents and his sister had perished there. And this was a moment of, I mean, that is a deep spiritual insight. That's a moment of compassion that's almost unimaginable. Um, And I think that was a moment for me in Berlin, thoroughly secular, thoroughly political, where I realized that this, this logic he was applying was so 
was out, outside the box of the world I was living in and the life I was leading and how I was deciding what was important and who was important and analyzing what happened in cultures and in government. And so, you know, he, he was very formative for me, even though it was years and years before I could really put these thoughts together the way I just did it for you. Yes. You mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh, who is also an extraordinary figure. And you're, you mentioned in a talk that you gave, I'm not sure it's in the book, but certainly I heard you talk about it in, in a talk that you gave, that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, being with Thich Nhat Hanh was in some respects as, as, as close to the being in the presence of God as anything you've ever experienced. Do I have that right, basically? It, you know, sitting with him... I, I felt like, uh, yeah, I. this is the closest I will ever get. And that's kind of a crazy thought, because he's not a theist. <laughs> and that brings up something I wanted to ask you about. You may know the beautiful line from Toynbee, which I'm always drawn to, that he thought that perhaps the that it would turn out that the greatest uh, event of the 20th century was the coming of the Dharma to the West. Do you know that line? Oh, I have heard that, yeah. yes. And, and one can argue with whether, I would actually argue the greatest event of the 20th century turned out to be the ecological you know, disaster we find ourselves in. But in the, in the world of spirit, in the world of meaning, certainly for the West, uh, the coming of the Dharma to the West has had an extraordinary impact. And, uh, and in a sense, precisely because it's, uh, Buddhism is not a deist uh, religion, and therefore it was strangely accessible uh, to many people who were not ready for religion, but were ready for the fresh experience of spirit. And it then occurred to me, and this actually only occurred to me today, looking at your work, that... Uh, also, with September 11, 2001, which had a formative impact on your program, uh, speaking of faith, uh, that uh, in the same general period in which the Dharma uh, of Buddhism came to the West, in a very strong way, Islam came mm. to the consciousness of the West, but with a very different face. Yeah. So yeah. it's just an interesting contrast of the way we welcomed uh, Buddhism, and then the uh, the shadow aspect, because we had not looked deeply into Islam and into the beauty of Islam, uh, that it came to us in a shadow form. It, uh, came, with great it power. came as a threat. It came as a threat. Mm-hmm. And it then became a, a real mission for you in this new program on uh, National Public Radio to explore Islam. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Oh, I I would say that the just a series of conversations I've had across the years with different Muslims, different kinds of Muslims, people with with a variety of theologies and backgrounds. Um, it's just been incredibly meaningful for me, and uh, I don't know. I I I've never thought of this before this moment, but I I think I have. Uh, uh, there's a similar reaction inside me to the one that I had in Germany because I um, admired so much about uh, that had come out of that culture and, you know, and people and historical figures like Bonhoeffer and also Germans of my generation who who struggled with that legacy. And I, I have that that feeling about my, my Muslim friends and conversation partners also. It's 
that I, that very identity now in the 21st century, you know, from one day to the next, it became a burden um, and a responsibility uh, for people who had any means and resources to speak out and uh, and be involved in kind of rescuing and reforming their faith tradition from the inside. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm talking with Krista Tippett, who is the author of Speaking of Faith and the creator and host of National Public Radio's Speaking of Faith. The first thing I had to learn when I first did some interviews with Muslims after September 11th was that, you you know, you and I talked a little while ago about vocabulary and languages, and they, they... Hmm. words don't have the same meaning and effect and form in, in, in as Muslims go about, as Muslims live with their faith, that they do in Christianity and, you know, Western Judaism. Um, we're very sense? word-oriented. We're, we're very good at, at stating opinions and beliefs and crafting those in terms of, of religion. Um, Islam is not a religion of beliefs. It's a religion of daily lived piety. It is much more about praying five times a day facing Mecca than it is about any kind of doctrine. I mean, there is very little doctrine. As traditional Judaism was originally. Yeah. Well, and I think I think Judaism and Islam have that in common, in fact, that it is about it's it's about what you do and how you live rather than what you think and what you believe. Right. And, and it's even about that whether on today or yesterday you could say you believed it or not. Right? right. <laughs> um, that's really not the point. Um, and and that gives of, you the freedom to argue about what yes, you believe. right. In other words, it's very much, as, as you say, Judaism is about wrestling with God. And mm-hmm. so there's a And whole, I love that in Judaism. Yes. I love that in Jewish tradition. Yeah. Yeah, and... But in Islam, even sacred text, even the Quran, it, it's not a book of words. I mean, Muslims experience the Quran as sacred more in the way we experience music and poetry than we read a didactic text. And so what the rest of us couldn't understand when we when we heard, uh, you know, that Osama bin Laden had said the Quran says this and Islam is this, is that, is that that act of his was so far out of the norm. That was unprecedented yes. for, for a Muslim to stand up and say, this is what Islam is about, or to yank a verse out of the Quran as though it's all about the words or that you can yank it out. Um, so I had to learn... To, that the vocabulary of Islamic spirituality is as much about sound and poetry uh, as it is about belief, and then how do you draw that out? And I mean, there have been so many things that I had to learn, and as I learn them, you know, I, my listeners are part of the conversation, and we learn them together about how we look at Muslim women and, and we draw inferences about who they are and about their religion 
in terms of what they wear, and we have no understanding of the nuance between, uh, you know, this culture and that culture, how many young liberated Muslim women are choosing to wear Islamic headdress. You know, and it can mean, it can be uh, a form of resistance, and it can also, of course, in a place like the, uh, Afghanistan controlled by the Taliban, be a total symbol of oppression, but it means many different things, and Islam is not one thing. And uh, so it's partly been just seeing that diversity within Islam and seeing that as a source of hope up against these very strong, strident, and quite monolithic messages, we, uh, you know, visions we get about violent Islam in the news and in media. One of your guests, Ibu Patel, I believe, spoke of al-Qaeda uh, as the most effective youth organization in the world. Uh, help me understand that in context. What was he saying? Uh, what was he uh, putting forward when he, when he made that comment? Okay. Well, you know, the way I want to describe it, that, that we can hear it as absolutely relevant to us, is that... Um, Al-Qaeda takes seriously the passion and longing of young people, young people at any time and place, to make a difference in the world. And Al-Qaeda is going into parts of the world where, for many, many reasons that, that often have nothing to do with Islam and often have everything to do with the behavior of Western nations and the colonial, you know, in hundreds of years of colonialism, People who live in places where um, they have very little access to education, where poverty is rampant, and where young people, therefore, um, have so little opportunity or freedom to, uh, to, to think big and to even have a kind of sense of themselves as powerful uh, in any positive way. And Al-Qaeda goes in and says, you know, you can be powerful. You know, not only that, you, you know, you are better. I mean, I, I remember talking um, early on after 9-11 to a, an Egyptian-American Islamic scholar who was radicalized in Egypt for a period in his youth and got out. And he said, you can't know how intoxicating that is to, you know, to turn 12 or 13 and see that you're passport is inferior to a Western passport, that all over the world, you know, your country is considered to be on the bottom, to be uncivilized, and then to have someone come along and say, you know, not only are you better than the British and better than the Americans, you are on the side of God. <laughs> and, he, you know, he used this word again and again, intoxicating at that age, and that's what Ibu Patel says, um, Al-Qaeda understands and mobilizes of course, the challenge um, for those of us who want to be on the other side of that equation is to, is to take young people seriously and also to create other kinds of opportunities for them uh, to turn that longing into something positive. That's a huge, huge task. I'm talking with Krista Tippett, who is the author of Speaking of Faith and the creator and host of National Public Radio's Speaking of Faith. One of the most accessible ways in which Islam comes to us uh, is, is through the Sufi tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, uh, Islam has entered our discourse uh, at one of its most mystical levels in a gentle way. You, 
you interviewed uh, Joan Chittister, Chittister, am I yes. saying it right? Yes. Chittister, who's a Benedictine nun and a very uh, powerful force in, uh, in the Catholic community who often uses Sufi stories to make a Christian point. So it seems to me that like Buddhism, uh, the Sufi uh, window into Islam has been a particularly accessible one for the Western religious and spiritual uh, mind. Absolutely. I mean, Rumi, became, uh, Rumi, who is one of the great Sufi poets, became uh, one of the best-selling poets in America just a few years ago. And um, we did a program, actually, more recently since I wrote the book, on which we called The Ecstatic Faith of Rumi. And, you know, and it's not just full-body spirituality. It's, um, it's a very cosmopolitan tradition in Islam. And many people who I've spoken with over these last years, many Muslims, um, feel that it's such an important piece of the picture as as Islam moves through this crisis, and it is in a crisis now globally, a period of ferment, uh, not that unlike periods of ferment that Christianity went through a couple hundred years ago. Um, but that Sufism contains this well of spiritual renewal um, that can be such an important part of Islam's maturation and healing. And it's a particularly ecumenical dimension of Islam. There are, as you know, Sufi traditions that believe that the Sufis existed long before the Prophet was born Mm -hmm. and that they they found... uh, refuge in Islam because the Prophet understood and welcomed them. But they see themselves as um, living in many different uh, religious and spiritual traditions. So it's a particularly ecumenical contribution of Islam. I think you're right. It's it's interesting making the comparison between that and Buddhism. Like Buddhism, it's such a generous, spirited, and rich source of wisdom and insight and it, it is accessible. People can take it seriously and even, you know, incorporate some of its sound and practices into their lives. And they can, they can do that alongside a devout practice of wherever they were planted, uh, being Jewish, being Christian. Um, it's very interesting. It is. Now, by contrast, you talk in your book and have done uh, shows uh, on your program, Speaking of Faith, uh, on the Pentecostal evangelical tradition, which really fascinates me. And uh, I didn't know before I read your book uh, what a power that has become in the world. Could you talk a little bit? You know, that? yeah, that is one of the great untold religion stories of our time. I mean, of all the religion that's in the headlines and all the big analyses you'll read of religion in the world, I mean, Pentecostalism is going to be p- perhaps as much as Roman Catholicism, possibly even more. By the end of this century, the face of Christianity worldwide, it's half a billion people. And it's not sectarian in the sense I'm not talking about a Pentecostal denomination. There are Pentecostal denominations, but there are Pentecostal charismatic movements in all the major Christian traditions, including Roman Catholicism. Something like one in ten Roman Catholics globally is also charismatic. Um... You know, like Sufism, Pentecostalism is a spiritual renewal movement within Christianity. 
Uh, now, because it's non-hierarchical and populist and charismatic, emotional, it takes many forms. And and in this country, in fact, after a hundred years, it started in Los Angeles a hundred years ago. It's got it's become pretty domesticated. <laughs> and so, in this country, we tend to conflate Pentecostalism with evangelical Christianity. And there is a lot of overlap now. But in the beginning. Pentecostals were reviled and uh, and denounced by evangelical Christians as these renegade, uh, you know, uh, half crazy uh, people who were betraying the true gospel. But this movement, which started in this country in the United States, has spread around the world, and it really is, you know, the religion story. And the forms it takes globally are very different from the form it takes here. And you know, Harvey Cox again uh, has studied, has got became fascinated as he as he realized that religion still mattered in the world a lot. He became fascinated by Pentecostalism, I mean, he compares Pentecostalism as a force in Latin America to liberation theology. It is in many places in Africa and Latin America, it is an emancipatory force for people who've been marginalized who have been taught that they have to go through all kinds of hierarchies and authorities to speak to God or even to be people of integrity in their societies. And they get the message from Pentecostalism that God can speak directly to them, too. Um, and it, so it, it, it is uh, just, you know, a fascinating phenomenon and something I, I'm not committed to helping people, helping people see better. And for the most part, I think it's... Well, I don't know. It's hard to generalize some, about something that's happening with half a billion people. There's a there's a lot to it. It's complicated, but much of it, much of it is about social justice, and that, you know that's not those those are not words I think we would put together with uh, the term Pentecostalism. You know what people know of it in the United States. Speaking of social justice, I've long been fascinated by. Um, you you talk of your deep love of, of the Hebrew Bible and, and the power uh, uh, of it for you because, as you say in your book, uh, it, it portrays life the way it really is. And um, uh, But one of the dimensions of the Hebrew Bible, we, we both know, is the extraordinary uh, centrality of justice. The centrality of justice. And it really is fascinating that in the political uh, 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 religious right movement in the United States, um, there has been this capacity, and I, like you, am someone who, uh, at least let me speak for myself, not for you, but, but I, have a, I have a tremendous sympathy, uh, an authentic personal sympathy uh, for evangelical Christians and uh, people who experience the living Christ in their lives. And... Uh, and I don't have difficulty with uh, a great deal of, of what they experience. But it is fascinating to me that uh, abortion and uh, a set of things that, and, and homosexuality and a set of things that are really not central uh, to the text of the Bible have come to play uh, such an important role Right. In communities of people for whom the Bible is the central life text. Issues of personal morality. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, and what I've 
come to understand uh, from getting a sense of history through my programs over the years, I think that that narrowing to to issues that affect me personally and that I might have some control over, that narrowing within Christianity happens when the world, in periods when the world is an especially chaotic and fearful place. And that is true of the world we live in. I, I think it felt even more true in the early 21st century now than it does a few years later. And I do want to say that one of the most fascinating and rapidly evolving things that I'm watching is how uh, many of the leaders of that same evangelical Christian, politically active Christian movement are starting to talk about poverty and social justice, these very kinds of issues that are just so rampant uh, in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. I, um, I interviewed Jim Wallace recently, who is really a, a spiritual, becoming a pastor, spiritual advisor, kind of Billy Graham-type figure, to a whole new generation of Democratic politicians, you know, who had bracketed this whole subject out of their vocabulary. Yes. And they are talking about poverty as a moral values issue. But what's perhaps even more interesting than that is that I also interviewed Rick Warren. So you have figures who we think of as being more on the right, who also are saying, you know, they're not, they're not uh, putting abortion and, and homosexuality away as moral, moral issues that they care about, but they're saying very uh, passionately, alongside those issues, we have to be thinking about poverty in the world and our place in that, about things that are happening like sex trafficking, and even about climate change. You've got the, the vice president of the National Association of Evangelicals, Richard Sizek, who's been in that position for 20 years, saying that he has been converted in the last few years, and he used that word, converted to the science of climate change. And I have to tell you that um, as critical as I can be, like anyone else, about some of the excesses of religion in our public life in recent years, um, I have tremendous hope that if evangelical Christians mobilize around issues like climate change and global poverty, I think something might happen. Absolutely. <laughs> because we have seen that, that they know how to organize and put a lot of power behind their beliefs. And I, I'm just, this is a fascinating development, and this is another thing that I think people, this is happening so quickly that I don't think the public has even had time to catch up with it. And I agree. And Richard Sizek, who I met through the National Religious Partnership on the Environment, and oh, one of the people right. I've, I've talked with here is Paul Gorman, who founded that and worked with Sizek for many years. Uh, uh, Gorman also worked with the Catholic and Jewish communities on climate change and environmental issues. And I interviewed him recently after uh, Pope Benedict made this uh, extraordinary statement, which I'm sure you've seen, on uh, the centrality of climate in Catholic life. Right. Uh, and so it does seem as though, and I share that sense of, of hope with you, that we're living in a period of time where uh, uh, the Christian faiths, uh, Judaism, are moving uh, in a direction which actually Islam has been in for a long time 
in which there is a, a, a return to justice as a fundamental issue and an embrace of environmental uh, concerns as, as deeply central to religious life. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. So these are some of the, the larger uh, uh, questions that you've explored in, uh, in, in your extraordinary program. I have to tell you that I've been struggling with these questions of religion, faith, and spirit for many years, and I didn't, uh, I'd heard about your program, but my friend and uh, Rachel Naomi Remen gave me a copy of your book and suggested that we have this conversation. And in your book, uh, you talk about uh, what talking with Rachel Naomi Remen meant to you. Could you say a little about your encounter with Rachel? Yeah, I mean, she's another one of those. She's just talking to her was clearly being in the presence of wisdom. And, uh, and there's so much that came out of that. But I think, uh, and this, you know, this is a theme that I've now heard replayed and I hear variations on it. And it's a theme that gets many, as I hear in many chords and it becomes very rich is, now we're rethinking our idea of, of healing and that healing, and I mean that in the broadest sense, and it might be a, a, an illness or it might be an injury or it might be our sense of personal well-being or our emotional lives. It, it, we, we went through this period where we, we, just, we thought about healing and, you know, she, of course this was very stark in the medical field in her life that it meant curing and and her, where she's come to, that that uh, that it's not that simple. And you know, and I I, I then interview, say, uh, a man named Matthew Sanford, who was paralyzed from the waist down at the age of thirteen, who for, who spent twenty years after that uh, thinking that he had to just forget about the lower half of his body. You know, it was that old model because that part was broken. And, you know, it reminded me of Rachel's story because she struggled with a chronic illness, kind of accepted that, you know, she would never be right. There were, there were all kinds of things she couldn't do. And then she, she talks about realizing that healing means, in fact, incorporating, knowing, incorporating, kind of honoring and embracing everything, everything, including what has gone wrong, including what is not perfect. And, of course, our culture's ideas about being perfect are just, are just so wrong-headed, and they just make us miserable anyway. Um, and so, you know, it was in the wake of that interview with Rachel, I, I realized that I was also able to, to be gentler with myself mm. and to be more whole, um, which also meant being really honest and, and honoring, you know, even what I didn't like. And, and also knowing, as she points out, that precisely those things that... That, that may seem inadequate, inadequate, that we struggle with, that weigh us down, they also, in a sense, connect us in more meaningful ways uh, to the rest of the world around us, which is also hurting. They make us sensitive and compassionate uh, towards other people who may be struggling with the same thing. And that's worth everything. Yes, indeed. You know, that, that's how we really can be sane and, and, and important in the world. Uh, that's what Thich Nhat Hanh would say, right? You know, the measure of our, of our impact is going to be in the measure of our compassion. And it's precisely through suffering and not being perfect that we learn that. And, 
those are just those are magical things to figure out. Yes. They really they transform you without anything, uh, you know, without anything objectively changing. But those are transformative insights. Yes, I want to go back again. Uh, I was just thinking back as you spoke about uh, Rachel's work and and uh, the meaning of healing in my own work. Uh, I'm interested in personal healing, and I'm also interested uh, in healing at the level of uh, politics and the environment. I use healing as a lens very much the way you use faith as a lens in that respect. And one thing that I didn't see in your programs, but I may simply have uh, missed it, have you talked talked with Jewish... uh, thinkers or activists about uh, their experience, um, the pain many American Jews feel uh, about the situation in the Middle East and uh, the situation in Palestine and so forth. There's a a lot of poll data, quite extraordinary poll data, uh, showing that American Jews, uh, younger American Jews, feel a deepening sense of alienation from uh, Israel, uh, even as they rediscover in very vibrant ways their own Judaism. And I wonder if that is a question that you've explored in some of your conversations. Um, you know, I, I don't think that lately uh, that subject of, of American Jewish uh, um, attitudes, feelings about Israel. I mean, that, that has come up over the years, and I did interview a young Los Angeles rabbi recently, a program we did about Days of Awe, about Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and she talked in the long conversation we had about how, you know, how as as younger people come back to Judaism, how something they do have to reckon with is their relationship with Israel. But she presented that as a complicated um, reckoning and a necessary reckoning. I think um, what I've probed more directly is uh, is, con- is in conversation with people in Israel and uh, and also Palestinians and how important it is for me, and I, I think this is also true of American Jews and, and all Americans, to be able to, to have something to work with to see beyond the surface, which is just which just leads me to, to despair. Uh, you know, just the horrible pictures and the horrible stories. And, uh, and so we did a program last year with a, a two people, an Israeli woman and a Palestinian man and uh, wonderful friends um, who are part of something called the Bereaved Families Forum. Do you know that? Program and and yeah. it, this is uh, these are people on both sides of the conflict who've lost loved ones. And in the case of the people I interviewed, Roby, the the, Jew, the Israeli woman had her son was killed by a Palestinian sniper, and uh, and Ali, who's from the Gaza Strip, his brother was shot in the head by an Israeli soldier. But these people have said, uh, as much as that has torn their lives asunder. They do not want their pain to be an excuse for more suffering, for, for more, for retaliation, for, for a continuation of the violence. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And, you know, what they say to me is, you know, tell our story, too, because even within, in this place, 
the, the politicians and the people who throw the bombs and shoot the guns don't represent us. And uh, t- telling that kind of story, I feel, gives the rest of us who are trying to, watching from the outside with our different degrees of relationship or concern about Israel or the Palestinians, um, it gives us more to work with, and it gives us sources of hope. And, uh, you know, that, that's where I think I've been probing, and, uh, and that's been helpful to me. That's very helpful. Krista, I'd like to close by asking you to read a passage in your book on page 230 that you describe as one of your favorite writings. It's by Reinhold Niebuhr, and it's about love. Could you read that for us? Yes, I'd love to. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote this in his book called The Irony of American History, and he wrote, Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, could be accomplished alone. Therefore, we must be saved by love. No virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our own standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. <laughs> so beautiful. That. Yeah. Krista Tippett, thank you so much for being with us at the New School. Oh, thank you for a wonderful conversation. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website, where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.